Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 63. Little breather after the opening rounds of the Rip Curl Newcastle Cup presented by Corona. And I'd imagine by the time you're listening to this, we're either back on or recommencement is imminent. If we haven't yet started the elimination round, there's still time to lock in and or adjust your fantasy teams if you haven't already. Go to worldsurfleague.com backslash fantasy and get it done. All right, episode 63. Today's guest is someone who was born in Ohio, but went on to become one of the best regarded surfers ever from the North Shore of Hawaii. An amateur standout, a pillar of the momentum generation, and a longtime threat, although he may dispute that, on the elite championship tour. His post-professional surfing career has seen him become a global favorite on the CT analyst team before switching gears to coaching elite level talent, including two-time WSL champion, John John Florence, as well as lending his insights to weekly sparring matches with Mick Fanning on Getting Heated. Please enjoy the lineup's conversation with Hawaii's Ross Williams. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's <laughs> <laughs> your boxes. All right. We have the Ross Williams joining the lineup. Finally, I feel like you and I were talking about this for a while, but thank you so much for, for joining the podcast today, Ross. Yeah, Dave, thanks for having me. It's uh, definitely an honor. I've been listening to your podcast. They're great. And um, yeah, this is cool. I'm excited. <laughs> well, how are you doing today? Where are you today? And, and who are you with? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm just here at home in, in sleepy old town of Haleiwa with my, uh, my three daughters and my wife. They actually went surfing. They're used to me doing some of these shows here at home with, uh, you know, not being able to share the internet, which is, um, I have three daughters, I have three daughters, Dave, 16, 14, and seven. So, uh, no Wi-Fi can lead to a, a mini melt. So, uh, I sent them to go surf Haleiwa. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm uh, the twins, uh, Troy and Kellen, they're seven now. And I was telling someone the other day that, uh, Troy figured out how to uh, text me on, she's got an iPad and she had to get an email account for school and, and she texts me and I'm like, I text, I, she's the only one I want to get texts from. I'm the only person I, I text with her more than anyone else in my life. It's pretty good. So fun technology. It's a blessing and a curse. It's, it's radical. Well, <laughs> so it is Easter weekend. I keep forgetting because time has basically been a flat circle for 12 months, but you're not in Australia. And I was wondering if between last year and this year, if, if you're like me in that, that kind of broke a, a, a many year run of being in Australia, which has been really weird for me. I think, I think I was there for like 12 years in a row or something or 14 mm -hmm. years in a row. Um, and then didn't go last year and didn't go this year. But I was wondering if you, you were feeling the same thing of, of not, not being there or maybe just not traveling in general. Yeah, definitely. Um, probably the, the most difficult part about this whole pandemic thing is uh, everyone kind of locked up and not being, you know, having the freedom to travel. That being said, uh, the last couple of years, Dave, I, I sort of set up my, I guess, career to travel less. I, I you know, I did those uh, a few years of just nonstop travel, doing commentary, 
and then transitioned into more full-time coaching with John. And that was also uh, full-time on the road the first year. Uh, but the last couple of years uh, have kind of made it a goal to stay home more and travel less, um, just to be with the family. And, and also, you know, um, it's just, tra- I really love traveling, but, you know, the amount it takes to, to follow the tour is a pretty big deal, as you know. Um, mm. So I am kind of used to not going with the tour the last two years. But that being said, I, I do go to Australia every year. The last two years, I've still been going to Australia with John um, for a week maybe like a month before the event on the Gold Coast to just get some practice in for him. And so I get my fix um, <laughs> for Australia, which is the waves, the people, the coffee, everything, you know, and yeah. um, I love it. My family loves it too. So we'll still try to go there maybe once a year. Um, I love that place. Uh, it Watching all the people there right now, you know, I, I, I do have a little bit of FOMO. It's funny. Like, I, I think that's, it's like a, we both, you've been doing it longer than I have, but like traveling around the world with the circus, with the tour. And then it's so interesting when you end up in a place that's not during the season, you know, like you mentioned going to the Gold Coast a month before. And I remember coming back to France, like at the end of the European leg after the tour had left or going to even sort of the North Shore, even though there's no waves like in the summer. And it's, it can be so nice when it's like, you're not, you're not, your energy's not getting kind of sucked into like, oh man, I got to go to like this function or that dinner or watch that person surf. And it is really, really nice. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know how it is. It's a, um, it's an environment, right? It's uh, you know, the tour takes, uh, well, especially in the capacity of working, like you're there working. Uh, and then for me, you know, commentating or coaching your, your capacities, you know, sucked into that little sphere. But I, like you said, if you go there outside of that, you actually get to experience the country, you know, and, and the people more than you would, not that you don't when you're there, you know, with a tour, but you definitely get, you know, more of an authentic feel. Totally, totally. And as you said, surfing is back finally, um, last week, by the time this comes out on April 1st, we watched the opening rounds of the Rip Curl Newcastle Cup presented by Corona uh, in pretty civilian conditions. I think Surfline yeah. took some sh- Surfline took some shrapnel on the call, um, but that's okay. And I mean, of course, we want the best waves possible all the time. But uh, contrary to popular belief, we don't control the ocean. But I thought it'd be a good place to start because um, you obviously are, are coaching a few folks on the CT. Um, you probably watched most of the day. I, I wanted to get kind of your first impressions of post-quarantine championship tour surfing at Newcastle. What, what were some of your bigger takeaways on the day? First of all, I think it's it's a double-edged sword. It's kind of cool because with Newcastle and Narrabeen, I really like it. Um, and this is what I mean by double-edged sword. Like, I think it's cool to have a little bit of a departure from our typical mainstays on the schedule. It's just something different. You know, a new city, new energy. Everyone's excited to have them there. And also it's nostalgic for me because these are places I went on tour in the 90s. You know, these are all like the big city events that we used to have, especially Narrabeen, um, which is the next event. So that part, I'm like, well, this is pretty cool to revisit some of these locations. And then it's a quick reminder. Here's the other side of the sword of why it can be really challenging because, you know, these are uh, locations that can be a little more prickly with conditions. And uh, that was some of the toughest waves I've seen, uh, you know, held on a CT event in a long time uh, the other day there. That was pretty small. It was grovelly. It was on the rocks. Uh, the servers were still ripping. That was one of my takeaways, you know, that everyone still surfs good, but you could see everyone was really uh, had their their 
their best foot forward and trying to stay positive and, and you know compete and play the game. But you know, usually we're spoiled with some pretty darn good waves, and that was a little bit of a struggle bus there. Totally. And I mean, I, I, when I started, I did the domestic tour in North America working, not, not competing. Um, but you know, doing a lot of pro juniors and lower rated QS events and like those conditions are pretty common, you know, because it's, you're running these events and, and, you know, like high quality waves are a finite resource and they don't always turn up. But I was, I had the same impression of like, you know, versus like, and I'm, I'm tracking back a bit, like watching, a pro junior level performance in those conditions versus like a Ryan Callanan or a Carolyn Marks or a, or an Italo. It's like, holy shit, like these are pretty domestic conditions and there is a huge level jump even like e even amongst the world's best surfers. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's funny because it, it does bring you back to, you know, some of these events where this is typical of how to win a heat in terms of like, well, so for instance, you bring, you brought up Ryan and, Caroline, who were probably like the, the highlights of the event uh, on the first round. Some other people were ripping to Italo, John, a lot of, a lot of surfers look really sharp, but uh, you know, it comes down to getting the best waves and not mm. falling surfing solid. That's all Ryan and Caroline did. That was nowhere near like the peak of their talent. They just surfed solid and, and didn't bog any rails and, and ripped the wave, but you know, the waves are pretty bad. So if you get a wave that's like overhead, you know, it's gonna, the judges are ready to give you an eight. Just don't mess it up. Now you're coaching John and you're coaching Tatiana. Is there anyone else that you're, you're giving tips to either above or below board? Um, so I have, those are, those are my two surfers on this championship tour. Um, yep. and then I, I have Finn McGill who's on the QS and Mahina Maeda who's also on the women's QS and, and both like, I'm really spoiled. Like, you know, each, each surfer I coach, I feel like just super talented. So, and then on a, a little bit younger level, I have Sakura Betty Lou Johnson, mm -hmm. who's a, I'm sure you're aware of her. You've heard of her. Yep. She's a total ripper that lives right down the road here. And my family's been uh, friends uh, with her family for a long time. And we've been going to the beach together. She's the same age as my daughter. So she's kind of like a Hanai daughter to me. And then um, the other kid I coach lives right up the street, Luke Swanson, who's mm -hmm. been ripping too. So they're right around 16 years old. And uh, so those are my six surfers I coach. Um, every now and then I'll, 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 I'll coach someone for a few months here and there, but those are my six sort of mainstays. With John and Tatiana on day one at Newcastle, John, I think he was riding sort of a epoxy dark arts board. Some of the surfers, I think Italo elected to surf an epoxy board. You know, some would just kind of ride a step down. Others would just surf their normal shorty. When you're coaching John and Tatiana, um, even remotely, are you guys talking about equipment? And then just based on the conditions from that day, did you have kind of a preference for surfers one way or another? Do you think they should have kind of gone to different technologies, different models, or kind of ride their bread and butter performance boards? So this question directly links back to uh, what we were talking about earlier with my schedule. And this is why I'm able to coach more at home. We just try to do all our, our preparation well before the events. And um, obviously, you know, we're working on technique and they're surfing and making sure that they're improving. You know, obviously Tatiana and John are at such a high level that, you know, we're tweaking that last, you know, 10 or 5%. Um, so it's not like any major tweaks, but still, you know, at that level, if you're going to win an event, you really need that extra 5%. So hopefully that's where I come in as a coach to sort of 
maybe un- uncover something that they're missing with their surfing, especially in small waves. Small waves is where it's pretty technical, right? And these first two events I'm really excited about because they're, this is technical surfing and that's as a coach, that's really fun to try and, you know, create your own speed and, and look better than everyone else. It can be very noticeable when the waves are, are, you know, pretty small. So equipment's the same, same thing. John and I have been working on, and Tati as well, have been working on their quiver for, for months. Um, so when the event is underway and they're there, you know, we're, we're already totally fine tuned. They know what they're going to ride and the waves are, you know, that small. You, you mentioned um, that, that both Newcastle and Narrabeen um, kind of hold a special place in your heart because they were mainstays when you were on tour. But I was wondering if, you know, in your current role, if you ever kind of pause and consider how different professional surfing is in 2021 compared to when you were touring. And maybe even if there are things that are actually more similar than most people appreciate. Yeah, so... Um What's cool about my age is I got to experience just a little bit of the 70s. You know, I was born in 1973. So as, a, as just like a, a mini Grom, you know, growing up on the North Shore, I got to experience just the end of that and actually comprehend that. And then, of course, the 80s, that was all the inspiration. And that was when, you know, when me and all my peers soaked in all the Tom Kern, all the Mark Ocalupo and all those legends of the 80s pots. Uh, and then we got on tour in the early 90s, you know, and so... In the 80s, you know, um, and, and the 90s, it was transitioning. In the 80s, it was um, definitely following, like we talked about, these big, big city beaches during the summer. It was about getting crowds to the beach. 90% of the events were really a struggle for waves. When I, when I, when, like me and my uh, peers came on tour in the early 90s, it was slowly transitioning, you know, especially with guys like Rabbit Bartholomew, who was at the helm of the ASP. Um, he, you know, they made a huge impact and made it a, definitely, you know, a priority to get some of these best waves that we went and free surfed and filmed movies that we all knew that's where you go get good waves. We were trying to bring that to the ASP world tour and, you know, credit to bugs and a lot of good people, they made it happen. And so anyways, in the, you know, in the late eighties, I was there for that too, where we were starting to get some dream locations. So it was kind of cool because you got this arc of like really groveling, going to Japan in the summer, going to Europe in the summer, where it was just the norm was knowing you had to pack your board bag full of grovel boards um, to all of a sudden going to Jilan and going to Tavarua. And um, of course, that's what the tour is like now. Mm. So, I, you know, in a weird way, I kind of like it that they have to grovel a little bit this year. and They just get a little taste. As a competitor, I'm curious, like, did you take the you know the g land event performance and and your your competitive performance there did you did it feel psychologically different did you be like this is serious i'm gonna i'm gonna perform my best compared to like it is a crapshoot you know at some of these beach breaks in the summer like you're running through a bunch of events like not that you didn't take competing seriously all the time but i'm just wonder i wonder if there was just a different psychology for you especially as you mentioned like seeing these like high quality remote venues kind of roll onto the tour. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny one. I mean, I'm just trying to dip back into my memory of maybe how I felt like, you know, as far as confidence going to places like Jilan or Tavarua. Mm. Um, I, I think for me, it did, it did me uh, uh, some benefit um, because I, you know, growing up in Hawaii, you're used to a lot of power. And so I, and I was a bigger guy, you know, nowadays you have like, 
John and Jordy and Owen and all these guys that are like uh, even taller than, than I am. But, you know, for, for the eighties and nineties, I was a really tall guy on tour. Um, I'm six feet tall. So when I went to places that were all of a sudden had some juice, I was like, holy moly, I got an advantage over some of these small guys and uh, that had a clear advantage over me, um, like Rob Machado and Pat O'Connell, all these guys that uh, when we went to two foot Japan, you know, I better had to have a really good board or I was going to get smoked by these guys. You know, they, they're weighing like a buck 30 uh, dripping wet. So, um, yeah, I think when I when we first started going to these really premium locations, I was like, OK, this is my time. You know, that that size differential is an interesting one. I, when I worked at the, I've told the story a couple of times, but when I worked at the Rip Curl Surf Center in San Clemente in, uh, in high school and in college, and the event would come to town, like all the surfers would get their quivers delivered there. And so we'd have everyone kind of come in to pick up, you know, 12 chili boards or whatever it is. And, and as you said, like you get used to seeing pro surfers and they're kind of, you know, you're like, oh, I'm taller than that person. That's great. And I remember um, Andy came in to pick up a leash one time and I didn't even recognize him. And I was like a huge Andy fan, like at first, because I'm like, that guy's too tall to be any like, pro surfer. And, and as you said, he's only, he was only like six feet, but just relative to everyone else, even back in the early oddies, there was still kind of a, it was mostly kind of shorter folks on tour. What do you think is the difference today for, for bigger physique surfers performing well, even in smaller waves? You know, you've got your Owens and your Ryans and your Geordies and your Danes. And, and, and it doesn't feel like being a bigger surfer is a disadvantage. What do you think are the reasons for that today? I would say it's a combination of better boards. I think the surfboards are better. Um, and the, if you think about what the surfboards were like, um, in the nineties, we rode really narrow boards that had a ton of rocker. So mm. they weren't conducive for sort of carrying weight um, over flat spots. They were great in the pocket and they had a lot of curve. So they, they worked awesome in good waves, but in small waves, it was always a struggle for mm. guys that weighed like 170 and above. Um, you needed like a, a magic board to really work in like, you know, tiny mushy waves. Whereas so now, you know, the boards are so uh, consistent, you know, getting spit out of computers and, and all that, you know, these shaping machines that are just, you're going to get a magic board eight out of 10 times. And then I think the other thing is obviously the schedule on, on tour is premium waves and that's going to do wonders for bigger guys. You know, you don't have to grovel that, that much anymore. Totally. Well, I don't want to wind the clock back on you uh, personally, because you grew up in Hawaii, but you were born in Ohio and you moved there when you were six. What was the deal? Why'd you guys move? Um, so uh, my parents came to Hawaii on a vacation um, in 1978 they just really loved it, uh, plain and simple. So um, that summer when they came here, me and my sister went and stayed with the grandparents for a couple weeks. Fast forward, my mom and dad come home with their mind blown. Of you know, <laughs> Ohio is, I don't know if you can imagine, you know, it's its flat, there's no mountains. Um, it's, it's literally polar opposite of Hawaii. And so, uh, and my parents were pretty independent, just a little, just the right amount of hippie in them, you know. <laughs> and uh, they, they came to Hawaii. They're like, oh, yeah, we're going to definitely move here. And, you know, they went back home. They took about a year and they, um, and they moved us all back to Hawaii, which was a big step because, you know, all their family and friends were on the mainland. But, yeah, I was I was super lucky. I think the one question I always tell this story when people ask about Ohio. But the one question I had for my dad uh, on the airplane, because I think I was uh, six or seven years old, was how does Santa land a sleigh? That was my big concern. 
And he's like, uh, he was pretty slick. He's like, oh, he puts wheels on his sleigh. You're good. Okay, cool. Let's go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we moved from we moved from Toledo, Ohio to Haliva. So I mean, that's just freaky. That that's insane. And I mean, we've talked to a bunch of folks on both sides, um, but you know, we talk about you growing up in communities like the North Shore and and being a white kid or being a Howley. Um, coming from Ohio, I think you probably qualified. Did did you ever run into any of that um, growing up on the North Shore? Yeah, a bit, you know, and you still do. It's just part of being a, a white boy. You know, you're just you instantly kind of look like you might be a tourist, especially if you're dressed kind of funky. <laughs> um, like a WSL but, commentator, maybe. Yeah. Um, like if you have some of those sandals with like the extra, I don't know what it is about when people buy those. It's like they, they kind of still are attached to a shoe, but maybe they want to wear slippers. They wear the ones with all the extras. <laughs> If you see that, you're 100% from somewhere very far away from Hawaii. No, I mean, we moved here when I was six, right? So I was I was lucky. We moved straight into a small neighborhood right in Haleiwa, and I was instantly immersed with, you know, a bunch of local people. And I just grew up like a – I was ignorant to the idea of being like a foreigner. I just grew up with my friends, and, and we were totally immersed into the neighborhood right away. And then – you know, I fell in love with surfing, obviously. So that was a whole community there that embraced me. Went to Haleiwa Elementary and Wailua High School. And, you know, all my best buddies were local. You know, I didn't have that many white friends. So it was kind of natural. But, you know, you can imagine how it is. Every now and then you're going to run into some grumpy moke and they might try to put you in check, but it's all good. <laughs> did, did your surfing ability um, help you navigate that at all or it just didn't matter? hundred percent. I mean, it's more, more, more about just like, uh, being part of that community. And yeah. if you're a respected surfer, that's the, more than like, if you rip or not, you know, um, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15, I started getting pictures in magazines and stuff mm. like that. And was sponsored by Billabong and, and that really helped too, because it was just kind of cool. I would come to school and, and sell my bad Billy stickers to some, you know, friends to make lunch money and, just that, that whole vibe, you know, it definitely helps. Well, I was going to ask, like, do you, do you remember kind of a vivid moment where you're like, I'm pretty good at this. I, I, I might, I might have a career at, at being a surfer. Was there a moment or was it more kind of a gradual, like, yeah, I did this, then I competed, then I got a sponsor. And before you knew it, I, this is what I did. I, I want to say it, it was very gradual and it was very natural. My mom and dad are super humble people. They were, you know, so different from say like sort of your mom and dad that raise um, some like competitive surfers these days, you know, they mm. were just folks from the mainland. They, they didn't know anything about, you know, raising like a competitive surfer, let alone a professional surfer. So that, I, that part I really liked, it was good because it was just natural. Um, they saw that I was really interested. They saw who I was friends with. And so they would take me to all the HSA events and all the NSSA events um, on the weekends because that was what we did. You know, instead of going to soccer or basketball practice, we went surfing and started competing. And I got smoked like the first year or two that I competed by guys like Maddie Liu and all these like childhood prodigies in, um, you know, in Hawaii. Um, There's a bunch of them. David Gonzalez, I remember, was just unbelievable. Shana Gatani, there was all these these local kids that were just such rippers. And I remember being definitely just trying to soak everything in. I was, you know, outpowered, outmatched and everything. And then 
as I, as I got a little more comfortable and a little more confident, I started winning events and, and that gave me a lot of confidence, especially, I think I won the, um, the U S championships when they came to Hawaii at Sandy's when I was 13. And then I felt like, okay, wow, maybe I got something here. Do you consider yourself like you, are you such sort of a enjoyable, polite, mild mannered guy? Do, are you really a competitive person in the water or in sort of, um, event situations? I can be in the right moment. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely competitive. If you ask my friends, they would laugh. They'd be like, that's an understatement of the year. <laughs> um, but I have weird competitiveness in me. I don't know what it is. Like, you know, I wish I had a coach when I was on tour because my, my competitiveness was, I had the worst aim. Like I would always be more competitive with my friends trying to surf really good during free surf. Um, when I put a jersey on, I had real sloppy like aim. I, it's my my competitiveness and my focus and my structure and everything was really loose, and uh, my my competitive results reflected that. You know, I was really hot and cold, mostly cold, because I think for me, what I cared about most was what my peers thought of me. Like if I got compliments from Shane Dorian or Kelly Slater or whoever, that made my day. And if I got like equal ninth in a couple of events, I just I didn't care too much, you know, so I just wasn't very focused. That makes sense. I think it's also probably a function of like, as you said, the competitive surfing eighties and nineties was changing. So like, you know, you get blown out at one foot Chiba. It's like, well, you know, okay. But like, oh, like Kelly and Shane thought I did like a, a nice turn at somewhere that I, I care about. So that kind of makes sense. Do you mention going to Wailua high school? Did you graduate? Yep. I graduated in 1991. I was really independent. I was already, uh, I guess, kind of a pro surfer by the time I was 16 years old, 17 mm. years old. So I was an okay student. I was just efficient. I um, uh, I got had all my credits by the time I was in my last couple semesters in my senior year. So I was already driving a car. So I had just a few classes um, and was surfing, you know, a, a big portion of the, my senior year in high school. So I graduated pretty easily, but my goal was really clear. I just couldn't wait to get my diploma so I could get on the road and, and start uh, getting on a QS. It's interesting, too. You mentioned um, there were sort of the child prodigies that would whoop your ass early on, but that you you ended up doing better then. And I think it's something that's interesting in like not just surfing, but like all of sports, even like entertainment with child actors. And there's kind of this element of like too much too soon sometimes is really not great, you know, like not only psychologically, but I think kind of motivation wise too, right? Where it's like, you know, if you're 16 and you're getting paid a couple hundred thousand dollars and you buy a house, like by the time you're 18, you're like, well, what, why do I want to go and try? Like I kind of already achieved. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that um, in general, but also specifically with John, because he seems like someone who's navigated the, what could have been a too much too soon situation, given how much attention he had when he was little. Yeah. That's an interesting one. I, I love talking about stuff like this because the psychology behind uh, sports in general is just really fun. Um, or even even like you mentioned, childhood actors. Um, it's just the, the psychology behind what makes a person melt, you know, by the time they're a young adult because they had too much too soon. It's really interesting. I, I think it, it always boils down to your upbringing, you know, how how stable of an environment you had growing up with parents and, and everything, you know, that support, whether it was rough or was it easy. Um, I think it all gives you the tools to, to weather the storm with early fame or early money. And some people can 
cope and some people just sort of melt down. So it's always interesting to me. And, you know, it's the sad truth is, is, uh, you know, most people I think kind of go down in flames because it is too much to really just because they don't have the tools to deal with it. And uh, I don't know, they just kind of implode. But John, um, as you mentioned, obviously it d- did not, you know, and he's doing great. I think it comes down to just for him, my, in my opinion, it comes down to his maturity. He's really mature for his age and he always has been. You know, his mom obviously killed it growing up, you know, uh, you know, raising her kids. I think the way she did it was very organic, you know, just on the beach, on the skate park. You know, she she didn't um, pamper them that way. I think she just raised them like, hey, get in the water and stay active. And um, mm-hmm. maybe as opposed to kids now, they're just like on their phone all day. You know, John and his brothers were, you know, out in the ocean all day and um, and, and the credit to John, you know, he just had that talent and he was, um, uh, and I think he does get this from his mom, that motivation, you know, mm-hmm. she's, she's got a serious side to her that I think some of those genes, you know, or are definitely in John where he's, he, he's able to narrow that, that talent into a focus and, and capitalize on it. And he's always been that way. He's very, very serious guy. You know, like all the all the years traveling with him on the road, he'll he'll go to bed at eight p.m. with a cup of tea and go read. You know, like how many twenty four year olds or whatever do you know that do that? You know, he's just uh, he's kind of an old soul. Agnostic of John this is something that I think Nick, Carol, and I, or Jordy and I, or maybe both of us were talking about the last couple of weeks. But you know, you look at other sports and they kind of have a built in matriculation system that 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 helps with experience or or maturity right because you look at a lot of other pro sports and they have the collegiate system which is the broader feeder system so most professional athletes whether it's a basketball or football or baseball or whatever they're going through high school and then they're going through college and then by the time they get to the pros they've it whether or not those academic programs were that strict on them they still had to grow into being like young 20 year olds Surfing doesn't necessarily have that, right? It's a community obsessed with the cult of youth. And we've had a a ton of kind of meteoric risers that in the mid-teens, really, to qualify on tour. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I get that that's a generalization. I guess maybe my question is that, do you think that we should maybe design a system where kids are going to, at least through high school, before they start trying to do the QS? I think so. I, I, I really do. I think this is also maybe a product of the 80s uh, in terms mm. of the physicality of it. You know, surfing, I, I wouldn't say is as extreme as gymnastics, but there's something there to where, you know, time is of the essence. You know, uh, gymnastics is maybe the extreme example, right? When you're 12, 13, 14, you're in your prime. You yeah. just need to be this f- springy, flexible little grommet that can fly in the air. And um, as you get into your 20s, you're a dinosaur in that world. And Surfing used to be kind of like that, right? Where, you know, youth was very important. Um, you know, when you were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, that was when you needed to get it done and win, win events and win world titles. And obviously, um, you know, the age has, has really broken through the ceiling now with, you know, some of the older guys on tour staying healthy and obviously Kelly leading the way and showing what's possible at, you know, he, Kelly is 49 now. I think to bring, go back to your question, now that we're sort of, you know, broadening that, that age spectrum, I think it is important because the flip side of it is, as you mentioned, you know, it, it could be, it could be really detrimental to grow up on tour. You know, I think someone like Caroline Marks is a good example that she's pulling it off because she has great parents and she mm. seems really mature for her age. She seems comfortable, 
but I don't know that that's safe to say that could be the case for everyone. Um, so yeah. I, I think it should, I, I think it'd be a great rule for the WSL to say you have to, you know, graduate from high school before you get on tour or at least be an adult, like 18 years old. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that the industry, you know, for whatever status it's in right now is they would appreciate it too, to a degree, because it does feel like kind of an unsustainable arms race of being like, well, now we got to pay a 10 year old or now we got to pay an eight year old or now, you know, and it's, yeah. there's been, there's so many examples of companies like paying kids and not actually paying people on tour competing for world titles, which it's a weird, it's a weird paradox in surfing, but there's so many examples of them paying kids up until the kid turns 18 and then signs with someone else. And it's like, well, like, why did you pay them for that long anyway? Just wait till they turn 18 anyway. You mentioned uh, the age ceiling being broken in surfing. And it's something that we see a lot, you know, like Peter Mel, I think he's 52 and he just caught the wave of his life at Mavericks this season. You know, uh, Kelly um, is still competing on tour. Mick Fanning is um, looking sharper than ever. Even, I mean, you yourself, man, and I was going to say this in the intro, but I got you here, so I get to say it anyway. I remember the first year you did the commentary full-time, so either 2014, 2015, and I remember saying it to someone, between the photos that you were getting at Jeffrey's Bay and the photos you were getting at Cloudbreak, they were like the best photos anyone was getting all season. Like you were, you were still <laughs> surfing at like an elite, elite level, and it was, it was rad to see. But you mentioned, uh, I mentioned Kelly there. When did you first meet Kelly Slater? Uh, I, you know what? I brought it up with the. I think when the U.S. Championships came to Hawaii, so it was at Sandy Beach on the South Shore. Kelly came and Sean Slater. Um, so we were 13 years old, um, and we hung out for a few weeks. We, we had a bunch of mutual friends and that was the first time I obviously heard about Kelly. He was already starting to get in magazines, um, and mm. stuff like that, but that was the first time I got to hang out with him and we instantly became buddies. You know, uh, Kelly's just got that really fun sort of childish humor that I have too, where we were perfectly <laughs> immature. We haven't really grown up since then. It's probably leveled off right around age 16, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just went surfing uh, with Kelly yesterday. You know, we're, we're still great friends. And uh, yeah, it was instantly like a very comfortable friendship. Is he going to hit you up for, for coaching help at some point? No, uh, Kelly's super independent. He's he, the opposite, you know. I will say Kelly's so smart. Like he's, he's, he's one of those guys, you know, like, like I mentioned how we were really fortunate to grow up when we did because we sort of saw that whole spectrum of how surfers – handled themselves in the seventies and eighties and nineties and how it's transitioned to what it is now to where everyone has a camp. Everyone really watches their diet. They have a mm-hmm. trainer, they have a coach. Um, and it's kind of, you almost kind of have to have that. Whereas Kelly is sort of the part of that, that generation that was very independent. Uh, but that being said, he collects information differently, right? So we'll go surf and he might pick my brain a little bit about some, this or that, and whether he learned something or not, who knows, but he's constantly, trying to learn, you know, he's, that, that guy is uh, really switched on, you know, he's always soaking in information. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like, for sure, he's got to be one of the most independent people in all of sports, but I think surfing in particular, it's such a lemming culture, right? Because it's so humbling every time you're surfing. So I think that everyone's like, Oh, well, what, who's shaping that guy's boards or what's happening there. And you can see Kelly do it sometimes too, where he's like, Oh, I'll try some Arakawa's and see how that goes. So it wouldn't shock me that he's collecting information from you every now and then. Cause he's like, ah, it's working pretty well for John right now. The other, uh, contemporary that, that you had, um, geez, you guys were sort of a, a 
triumvirate of excellence was Shane Dorian, right? And he's he's got to go down as sort of your your number one sparring partner throughout your years on tour. Yeah, so uh, Shane Shane and I were like best buddies, you know, and and had a really good uh, upbringing together with uh, with guys like Jason Magalhães and Matty Liu. There's uh, there's a few others, the Hill House, like Ronald Hill and the Littles and Todd Chesser. And anyways, we had this this tight group that we all like just hung out all day, and especially Shane because we were sort of the same age and. We're both from Hawaii, but wanted to get on tour, which was really tough. And uh, so we had the same goals. And, uh, you know, we had that very competitive relationship for sure, you know, where we were like good friends and, you know, loved each other like brothers, but also were sometimes that was exactly what was, uh, you know, how we acted like brothers in the water too, like that would fight, you know, and we weren't exactly propping each other up at times, you know, it was, it'd get a little uh, heated there, but yeah, uh, Shane grew up on the Big Island too. So we we started hanging out more when we were like eight, 17, 18 years old when we started traveling on the road. Yeah, right. And I mean, you mentioned that you weren't always propping each other up. Is there any particular incident that's, um, I mean, there's no rating on this podcast. You can tell us whatever you like, but there is there anyone <laughs> that stands out to you as a good example of potentially not being uh, endearing to one another? There's many. You know, what's funny is they're, they're in Newcastle, Newcastle right now. And, uh, so when Shane and I were about 17, 18 years old, we started making that movie sons of fun with Jack McCoy for Billabong. And, um, during that film, we went to Newcastle to compete, uh, which was a QS cause we were both not on tour. We were, you know, on the QS and, um, and Jack was filming us, you know, 24 seven. And, uh, we had a heat together and Shane, uh, the heat, Fast forward to the end of the heat. There's a few minutes left. I needed like a 2.3 or something like that. Uh, Glenn Winton, I think, was in second place. And that just ate, you know, puts a sort of a moniker on the age there. Of <laughs> what, what era this was. This was probably 92, 1992. And um, Shane was in fourth place. And he proceeded to paddle me up the rocks like 100 yards into deep water with two minutes to go. Even though he was in fourth and, and needed like a much bigger score. He just took his best buddy up into no man's land and just iced me out for that heat. And I remember being so uh, just baffled, like, wow, like, I can't believe it. That's at, at the end of the day, I'm sure I did stuff like that to him, too. Um, <laughs> it was just I don't know. We we weren't very smart in that way. You know, we could have we could have been a little more friendly in some some uh, competitive arena, you know, and, and uh, gotten better results from it. But, you know, the, another famous story that we Shane mentioned in that Momentum Generation movie, which was uh, we had a heat together on, on a CT. This is, uh, you know, fast forward several years. I think we're probably like 23 years old. And we had a heat. We were in uh, Reunion Island and we had a heat at St. Lou, which is that perfect left. And uh, and all our friends would love it when Shane and I had a heat together because they knew that we were going to be just super feisty. And, you know, it was like a good rivalry. And this is the funny thing in that movie, he talks about how he woke up the next morning and there was a big hole in his board. And he, he, he blames me for punching a hole in his board, which I did not do. And to this day, we don't know how it happened, but he's like, Oh, Ross and I are roommates. Who else would have done it? But the funny thing is, is I didn't do it. I don't know. I don't know who did it. Um, it might've been, might've been one of our, uh, our friends that were staying with us that maybe didn't like him. Like, uh, 
Kaipo Hakias or Leo Rios. We had a couple guys, like, who knows, you know, they might've just punched a hole in Shane's board for me because they liked me better. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I have no idea what happened. But anyways, fast forward into the heat, Shane smoked me. I was like trying way too hard and blowing my fins out everywhere and fell the whole heat. And, and Shane, Shane was a little more poised competitor for sure. And he, you know, he, he knew how to compete uh, uh, in a pretty calm demeanor a little more than well, I would get more excited um, so he loves that story because he he smoked me there. But they, that was in a nutshell. That was our our um, friendship. You know, uh, we we would we were brothers and we loved each other, but we were a little overly competitive. <laughs> well, I got a couple more topics I want to get to as well as the listener questions. But first, we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors. In the eight hundred five, we live life on a different path. Where medals aren't given, they're earned. Where stories aren't written, they're lived. And legends aren't born, they're made. It's not just what you do, it's who you do it with. This is 805 Beer. All right. So, you know, it's funny. Like, it, I mean, it's, I, I always think it's funny getting to do what I do and getting to do what I've done for 15 years now at the ASP WSL is, is having been fans of so many of the, the guys and girls um, that I end up getting to work with, um, yourself included, and, and then getting to kind of stress test the impression I always had of people and seeing how accurate it was, you know, based on what I was being fed from the media at the time, meet, um, you know, magazines or videos. And the line on Ross Williams was always one of the world's best surfers, like amazing power surfer, you know, gives Kelly and Shane and all these other sort of vanguard surfers a run for their money outside of the jersey, but never really delivered on the results inside the jersey. And I'm wondering a couple of things. When you were setting out to compete, did you have any specific goals? I mean, some people say, yeah, I was there to win the world title. Otherwise, why would I do it? But other people are like, no, I just wanted to surf as good as I can. And this sounded like a lot of fun. So I'll start there. Did you have very concentrated world champion aspirations when you started your professional career? Well, first of all, I would say that's fair, a fair assessment. Um, I think, well, like, as I mentioned, you know, with, with um, Shane Dorian and Kelly Slater, for example, not to mention Rob Machado, Taylor Knox. Like I had this crazy pure group, right? Where these, these are just a bunch of badasses that were not only really talented free surfers, but amazing competitive surfers, just really savvy and smart. I was really competitive. Um, but as I, I mentioned to you earlier, I just don't know that I was very savvy. I think I shot myself in the foot more often than not. And that's why, like I mentioned earlier, I wish I wish I was smart enough to to hire some sort of coach when I was um, younger. I think it would have helped me a lot because I I will say I was I was aware of my talent and I, I was confident. I knew I could beat and I did sometimes like beat Kelly and Shane and these guys and, and with a jersey on. So I knew I could do it, but consistently I did not. And it was because I think I was just too frothy. I think I was too proud, to be honest. I would always try yeah. to surf with a lot of talent rather than kick in the competitive mode and, and be smart. And I was very famous for shooting myself in the foot. I would sit out the back and, you know, way too long and just catch like one or two waves of heat where 
someone like a Shea Lopez or a Renan Rocha and like all these com- really smart competitive surfers in the nineties would, would take advantage of me all the time uh, and just surf a very smart calculated heat. So I guess that's what I boil it down to. You know, um, I, I think I was a little too proud and I always tried to like rep heats and do like as, as good of a turn as I could do rather than, you know, and back, keep in mind back then it was top four waves or top mm. three. Um, so that was even more, put even more of a premium on surfing smart and safe. So no excuses, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my career. I, I had an okay career. Um, but when people say I underdelivered, I, I would have to say that's fair. And at the end of the day, I think it was just because I was always trying to surf really hard, um, mm. which is, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that in a weird way too, but you know, it would have been nice to, you know, finish in the top five and win a bunch of events or, or even win a world title. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm, you're not going to find me crying in a corner about it. <laughs> well, you are a celebrated member of the momentum generation, as I like to say, the most tolerable member of the momentum generation. <laughs> because that was such an important part for surfing and for the value of surfers at the time, were you kind of self-aware of that as you were competing where you're like, ah, oh, look, yeah, I'm not winning events, but I'm getting these segments in the momentum films. And that's as important, if not more for me right now and my sponsors. Was that, was that a thought for you or was it a thought for any of your peers at the time? It was a thought, but it was definitely, I would say it was natural because we started hanging out and built our friendship with Taylor Steele when we were 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, this was well before we were, on tour, you know, competing on a QS, let alone a championship tour. So, um, the, the evolution of being in Taylor's movies happened first before contests. And we all were raised on some of these awesome movies, like all the Billabong movies and, you know, surf in the summer and pump and all these really cool surf movies, that, um, Jack McCoy's movies. And, and we all held this special place, um, in our hearts for surf movies and free surfing. And then we also held a special place for competing and winning like a Tom Kern um, mm. and all these people, like all our heroes were, had a little bit of both. And so growing up, it was natural to want to do both. And I definitely did that. And, you know, we always had, you know, our whole peer group definitely had goals and wanted mm. to make the tour. But for me, I, like I mentioned before, a few times, I think my goals were always kind of fuzzy. I just wanted to get to this platform, get on tour because that's what my friends were doing. But I always really cared deeply about surfing my best and, and having a great part in either Taylor Steele's movie or a Billabong movie or whatever. It was, it had this equal um, relevance for me, but I was never really strategic about it. I never thought like, Hey, this is going to get me big contracts or this is going to help my career. Everything was always, I was just like a big grommet, you know, I wasn't that calculated. And you did nine years on the CT, I think. When you were bringing it to a close, um, which I think was 2000 maybe, and you would have been around 28, what was that like for you just career-wise? Like what were, what were you thinking um, at that point in your career? Like were you trying to hold on? Were you ready to stop? Were you looking at the next thing? I, I'm, I'm curious. No, it was abrupt for me. It was, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a bummer because I was, I felt like in my prime, I was surfing better than I ever surfed. I was starting to get smarter. I was, you know, um, starting to win heats and by being a little strategic, not just being a grommet, you know, and trying to rip the face apart on a wave. So I kind of liked that I was starting to mature, 
and I was feeling confident. But uh, let's see, when I fell off tour, I think it was the year 2000, and I can't remember what the cutoff was. Let's say it was 28. It was right mm. around there. It was 32, 28. It was right around there. It was like, might have been 20, it's 20 something. But anyways, I, I finished like 30th. I fell, I was just on the outside and I fell off tour. As you mentioned, I think I was 28 years old, but I was, I was really surprised because I had a shocker. Like I had, I think I had four fifths. So I made, made the quarters four times that year. And then I had a bunch of last place finishes, which was I think equal 33rd. So it was just like my career, right? Really hot and cold, nowhere near where I should have been. I felt like I should have been like top 10 guy easy if I just was a smart competitor, but I had a really off year, a lot of frustrating losses. Um, so anyways, to make a long story short, Dave, I, I always had every intention of getting on the QS. I was like, I'm, no, I'm nowhere near done. And then I had a horrible injury. I broke my foot and it took like a full year to recover from that. I had two surgeries. I was in a cast mm. for nine months. It was a Lisfranc fracture, which Kelly had at JB a few years back. Oh, wow. Some of the guys have had it and you can have different um, levels of it, but mine was really horrible where I just broke every bone in my foot. It just got completely annihilated. So how'd you break it? I was surfing with, with a bunch of my friends with Kelly and Shane and Benji. And we were, we were having a good time. And I did this big all-oop like way out the back and had no uh, chance of making it, but I was firmly on my board and I just liked the way it felt because I was planted on my board and so I said, I'll just land it even though I was out the back of the wave, but my knee was locked straight. So when I landed, my board was really flat. So I like pancaked and all the pressure went on my foot. It just mm. blew my foot in half. But yeah, so anyways, that, that really iced out my ratings, my seating points. Because I, I, uh, when I was on a CT tour, I never did the QS because um, I always wanted to spend my off time filming with Taylor or filming for Billabong or whatever it was. So um, that really killed me because I had no nowhere to go. So by the time I recovered, I had to start from ground zero. And that by that time I was around 30 years old. I met, I met Jen, my wife. Um, and so I, that was kind of what pushed me into sort of competitive retirement. And what are you thinking career wise? Cause I mean, it's so, it faces so many people get faced with it, you know, in the surfing world at 30, where you're like, well, I've been a professional surfer and I've been competing. I've been doing these movies and it's a game of stickers and I get paid to put them on my board and stuff. And what are you thinking at that point? Are you, are you, and what, I guess, what are those conversations like with the sponsors you had? Was there, was there a demand for you to keep competing or keep performing or had you kind of made a reputation for yourself where you're like, look, I can do this and maybe I'll start diversifying and getting into kind of different career avenues. Yeah, that was a, a weird time in not only my career, but in the surf industry. So that, that was when Bob Hurley separated from Billabong and created Hurley, uh, which is, you know, right around 2001. Uh, so it was kind of split in half, like half of us stayed with Billabong and half went with Bob Hurley and, and, for me, I had really unfortunate timing because I was off tour. So instantly, I think I, my sponsors were Town & Country, Oakley, and Billabong, and I was getting paid great money, and then I fell off tour, and my contracts were up. So it was like the perfect storm. Everyone had the right to say, hey, we're going to pay you half as much or whatever it mm. was, you know. Um, and then Bob split with Billabong, and so it kind of left me in this weird no-man's land. So I, I did sort of have to recreate myself and that was when Vinny Della Pena started Ezekiel uh, and he uh, signed me and for five years. And that sort of was what helped me kind of go in that direction of being more of a free surfer. Um, and he was really okay with that and backed me on that. And uh, we just made some surf movies and 
Um, and that was what kind of kind of helped finish off my career into my late 30s. Yeah, I, I vividly remember um, Ross Williams' Ezekiel ads. A green shirt comes to mind. You might have been <laughs> one of the first guys wearing a T-shirt out there that I remember. But yeah, did you, and, and I guess it sounds awesome, right? It sounds like great, like, like surfing is freedom for so many of us and competition is, is paradoxical and that there's kind of rules and regulations and like being a free surfer sounds great. But I've heard this from so many people that like, after their competitive tour, when they become a free surfer, they're like, it's not as easy as you think because you still have to deliver all the time, but then you have to go beyond that to go like, well, how, how am I going to deliver? Because I'm not going and surfing at the Trestles event or I'm not going to Europe and I don't know what I should be, how I should be surfing because I don't kind of have that, you know? Like, I, I'm wondering what your take on what it was um, when you started. You know, it's so these are different generations, right? So, uh, when I was finishing up my career, uh, it was transitioning into social media. Uh, mm. and so all these monikers and, and how you valued yourself and, and how a company would find like value in a surfer. No one knew what to do for there for a minute. You know, it was, it was transitioning from like, did you get a cover shot and surfing or surfer mm. to, uh, you know, how popular are you on, on, on social media. And then there was that slow transition there where, um, I think everyone was trying to figure it out, but it's, it's essentially the same to this day, you know? So if you're going to be a free surfer, as opposed to what we all kind of know is the, the top of the top of the food chain, which is world champions kicking ass on tour and having a presence, you know, on social media and being popular, you know, there was that weird 10 year, gap there where everyone was trying to figure it out. Like, how do you put value on a surfer? Mm. And so for me, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, ride out my career into my late thirties. And then uh, that was when I found commentary and I was surfing for reef and, and Heath nutty Walker. He was, you know, one of the main guys there working at reef and he was the first guy to hire me, you know, for the reef Hawaiian pro at Haliva when I was, you know, I don't know how old I was maybe late or mid thirties. And, um, uh, and so that's what got me into that sort of that next chapter into my career. And that, that was, I was lucky because that's how I found my niche and like sort of, you know, surfing, you know, hopefully as a surfer, you're always going to be able to stay in this world because that's all we know, you know, that's mm. my education and that's where I want to be. So that was really beautiful for me to be able to just sort of accidentally find that, that next niche. And on the topic of next niches, when did you start coaching or when did you get the bug? Because I mean, I'm not, I'm speaking for myself, but I think I'm also speaking for a good chunk of the audience where you were uh, one of, if not the most celebrated commentator we had for that period of time because of your depth of insight, because of the way you would break things down. And I remember there was a little bit of, um, you know, a furor happening when you decided to leave and go coaching. Everyone's like, oh man, what? No, oh, no, we lost Ross. But I'm, I'm curious as to, when you started coaching and the decision to be like, yep, this, this feels like the next um, logical step for me to take. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, you know, that, that means a lot because I, I really, well, so to, to step back a, a minute there, when I first started announcing those triple crowns, that was how, that was how I discovered like, well, I actually like this um, mm. as far as commentary goes. I, I just naturally loved it. I've always been a really analytical person and whenever you're with your buddies and you're watching heats. I was right there with all my buddies analyzing heats, who's ripping, who's not, 
or or even for instance, if it's just watching a surf movie, I always was I would just love to be in the mix of that conversation of analyzing, you know, why someone's surfing so well or why someone's not. So that first like four or five years of announcing the Triple Crown was awesome because that really uh, it helped me discover what I loved. And then those fir- first few years um, working with the WSL, I really really loved it. Uh, it just it was just felt so natural and at home for me. And I still do when I announce events, you know, here and there to this day, for me, it's cathartic. You know, it's, I, I really, you know, all surfers have so much crap in their head um, to be able to announce, you know, you just let it out. It's, it feels good to be able to analyze heats and, and, and just enjoy it and have fun. But to answer your question, uh, you know, I've been buddies with John for a long time, but, uh, you know, he reached out to me in uh, one of those very first few years um, that I was commentating on tour. So 2014 or maybe 2000, early 2015. And right away, I thought, wow, this is super interesting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really a coach, you know, but even though I knew I had maybe some of the right tools to coach, um, it wasn't really on my radar um, to do it. So it kind of threw me off guard. But as we evolved our relationship, it became more and more natural. And you officially started coaching John after he won his first world title. Is that right? The, his first world title is when we started working together. So oh, the, okay. the very first, the very first event was it 2015, right? His first title. Uh, 15 was Adriano. So he went. He was 16, 17. So, okay, so 2016 then was the the first year we started working together. So the first two events, he worked with B Durbage. Yep, and we started talking. And I was like, well, hey, you know, I'm kind of full-time working for WSL and commentating. I don't know how this is going to happen, you know. And, but that's when we just started talking about it. The very first event we worked together uh, was the event he won in Rio mm. uh, that year. But we were just working kind of, you know, more – it wasn't an official thing. Like, you know, it wasn't full, full-time. It was just more at home on our off time because obviously on the road I was commentating and, and so it was that, that year that he won his first title is when we first started working and – the results were instant. Like we, um, we, uh, you know, I always looked at John, like here, this is a surfer that can win a million world titles. He just needs to be a little more calculated. And so that was what we really worked on. And he was such a hard worker and instantly, you know, you could see the results right away. Like he just, he was just, if you remember that in that event in Rio, he surfed smart for him. He did a lot of finishing moves and, he sort of got his scores and, uh, and then he did big errors. And, and in my eyes, that's how guys like Gabriel and Italo and John surf at their best when they, they keep their wits, you know, and they, they don't shoot themselves in the foot, but they also display their talent. And it just took John, you know, just a little bit of that dedication to sort of wrap his head around it. And to be honest, I saw some of me in him. Obviously he's a million times more talented than I ever was, but he was very proud. And those first few years on tour, he was very happy to have the best air of the event or the best barrel or the best turn. And I, I wouldn't say he wasn't competitive, but you know, it wasn't at the forefront of his, you know, his brain. And so for him to just make, you know, move a few of those things around, he started winning really consistently. I mean, it's quite the calling card to be like, yep, started coaching and had a, a world champion year one, John, John, or anyone else really. I'd, I'd imagine doing that has generated a lot of attention and interest in you as a coach. Have you had to tell people no um, who've wanted to work with you? Yeah. So I've, I've kind of created this really cool environment for myself where I'm trying to keep my 
my sort of bubble of surfers small because, you know, there's a lot of ways to be a coach and it's, it's sort of this weird evolving job space in our, in our surf world, right. Where it's kind of, it's sort of new. Um, and now there's, there's quite a few coaches out there, but for me, I I'm very comfortable, um, where I'm at now, which is, I, I really enjoy working with the world's best and I'm trying to work with these elite surfers where I don't have a bunch of younger kids um, where it's, you know, sort of like herding cats <laughs> where, you know, that, that takes a special, like a whole different set of skill set you know, to, you know, nurture these kids from that age up where I, I like that too. And I do have a few amateurs I work with, but they're, I'm spoiled. Like I told you, and they're already at this elite level. And mm. that's where my interest level goes way up because I love fine tuning that last 10%. To me, that's just where I feel like that's my, that's my space as just this analytical head, you know, and, and being um, a, a pro surfer my whole life and on tour and all that, all those weird information that gets stored in your head. For me, it's like, uh, it's very, like I said, it's cathartic, uh, just like commentating, coaching for me too. It feels good. It feels natural. And also the way I coach, I, I try to be a surfer first and a coach second, because um, for me, that feels natural, right? Because there's some coaches that are way better than me at like, uh, you know, having the, the pen to the paper and a towel around the neck and the whistle and like, you know, really starting out, you know, those baby steps. Whereas for me, I like coming at it with a surfer's mind and, and being that sounding board and let's work at it together uh, for a long period of time. You know, I, I don't try to strike mission these, these coaching efforts with a few weeks. You know, I, I like to build relationships. We've talked a little bit about John, but the other elite surfer on the CT you coach is Tatiana Weston Webb. And she's in a different place than John, whereas John's a multiple uh, world champion. She's pushing to become a title contender and trying to be at the level of the Tylers and the Carissas and the Stephs. Does that affect your approach to her um, just because she's at a different place in her career? Do you or is it sort of do you kind of provide the same insights to both surfers or do you treat them as sort of unique cases? Everyone's so unique. My, my coaching style stays pretty, pretty much the same, but everyone is so different. You know, everyone needs their own very unique set of uh, tools or advice because everyone's personality is at the forefront. I think personality is the number one thing. I'm like, I'm a pretty low key guy. So again, it's not my style to crash into someone's program and reshape it. I'd rather, you know, really pinpoint where some of these weaknesses are, or maybe there's some space there to grow and highlight that to them and work at that goal together. And for Tatiana, she's fiery. You know, she's a little firecracker. She's, she's got great energy. She's beyond motivated. So for me, it's molding her in the right way to focus that energy. And then, and then the other thing where I feel like I'm pretty strong is visual. Uh, I can pinpoint some of the, the technique where in their surfing can they physically get better? Not just mentally, you know, you know, so peeling it back a little bit, like not just being a raw, raw coach and like, Hey, you got this. And, you know, make sure you do this and that it's more like so, sometimes it, you know, especially if we're far away from an event time-wise uh, that's when I really try to boil down some of these surfers at these high level, their technique where they might have ways to, you know, get a little more speed and surf a little faster or surf a little more power and throw a little more spray not easy to do with people like John John and Tatiana because they're already so good. But th again, that last five, 10%, it can transition into a win on a CT, which, and that's that small space that all these high level surfers are working with. 
those people that work just a little extra harder are the ones that are you know winning events. That makes a lot of sense. It reminds me, I mean, it's interesting that more and more surfers are starting to break down the point of difference into terms of percentages. You know, Jordy was sort of saying the same thing where it's like, you can look at your equipment or your fitness or your technique or your strategy. And if you can squeeze a little percentage in each sort of vector, you're, you're, that's the difference between winning and losing. Before you go, um, I want to just get a uh, inside scoop. If you uh, were surfing with Kelly yesterday, do you think we're going to see him back in a jersey this season? This season? Sure. Oh, yeah, we will for sure, 100%. He, he, had, he had, you know, again, so Kelly's 49 years old. To surf, just to bring it back a little bit, just to surf the way he does, I, it, to me, it, um, it's just baffling. You know, all of us, whether it's Shane Doran or Taylor Knox or myself, we all have these war stories of like, oh, my back or my <laughs> knee. You know, everyone's, you're just, you know, it's just that that's what's going to happen as you get older. If you're still doing some like pretty hardcore surfing, you're going to get injured. So Kelly has a host of injuries. You know, he also had a Liz Funk fracture at J Bay that year. So all these things, as you get older, they trickle into other parts of your body. And so, you know, Kelly's got a lot of needling injuries that he's really good at sort of uh, just pretending it's not there. He's a pretty tough guy. Um, and he's been doing that the last few years on tour. You know, he's he's been dealing with it. Um, and I, I just can't imagine trying to compete against someone like Felipe, you know, in, in four-foot beach break when you're 49 years old. It's just baffling. And Kelly holds his own, too, to his credit. But, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, he ha- he hurt his ankles riding dirt bikes earlier this winter. And so that that's still been really uh, sore. And he's been – there were just sprains. It wasn't like breaks. But uh, that compounded into some, like, other needling injuries. And then he, he, he flexed his hip, too. He tore his hip a little bit uh, mm-hmm. right before Australia. And that's what kept him from going. But I think, uh, you know, he's, he's such a hard worker. He's been, uh, he's been working really hard at it, going to the physio and doing a lot of work here with people in Hawaii. So I know his goal is to definitely jump back on as quick as possible, maybe even before the Australian leg is over. But I think he wants to be competitive, right? Kelly's pretty proud like all of us. He doesn't want to go there and get smoked and if he's like surfing at 60% or 70%. So as soon as he gets a little more healthy, that, that kid's back on tour. It's so interesting, right? Because we, we talk about this every now and then where – you know, the end comes for everybody. And people have been talking about the end of Kelly's competitive career since he started, since he probably retired in the 90s the first time, you know. Um, And you look at kind of elite athletes across a bunch of different sports, whether it's football or basketball, and they generally, you know, there's outliers, but generally peak and maintain a, a, a world title condition like late 20s, maybe early 30s, right? But then when they fall off, and as you said, like for the ones that are beating everyone in the world, they don't want to just hang around. They want to be competitive. They want to win, you know, and it's a pretty abrupt drop off, right? Like for a lot of them where it's like now I'm, I'm not doing it and I'm gone, you know, and, and I always think of it like if you're you're kind of climbing this mountain of immortality throughout your 20s and 30s, if you're still competing at that level and it's a hard thing to come to terms with when it's over. And for Kelly, he's kind of well beyond the horizon of what we've ever seen. You know, he's at 49. So he's further up the mountain than almost anybody's ever been, certainly in surfing. And I wonder if when it does come to an end, it is going to feel really abrupt because we kind of have deified him for decades. And it's like, oh, he can't be done, you know, but maybe, maybe that maybe is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't think it's going to be comfortable for him. You know, it's uh, competing on the world tour for Kelly is home. I mean, mm. that, that is his home. So it's going to feel like for him a huge, uh, he's going to have separation anxiety for sure. And you know, Kelly, you know, that dude has FOMO over, you know, <laughs> maybe where you guys had lunch, let alone like a rad surf he might've missed <laughs> or wherever, you know, he's, he's got FOMO for everything. So when Kelly actually hangs it up and doesn't go on tour anymore, he, you know, I'm sure it's going to be really tough for him, but he's had a lot of time to work on that mentally. So um, I don't think a lot of people are going to be feeling bad for him. And, you know, he's going to retire at the best way. You know, he's going to he's such a grommet as far as like always wanting to get good waves. So I'm sure that's how he'll retire. You know, he'll be scoring waves. He'll be making sure that he pushes that on into the face of people on tour like I scored with no one out you know he's he's always going to have little jabs um, at people on tour he'll get his little victories in some way yeah I think that's right before we go to the Instagram uh, questions um quick one for you since you are a getting heated um co-commentator with Mick Fanning who would do the biggest turn in a free surf peak Ross Williams or peak Mick Fanning at 12 foot Haleva oh 12 foot Haleva that's big yeah, yeah, I went big. Uh, <laughs> well, Holly is my home spot, so I'm taking Mick out. Screw that. <laughs> Good. I, I like that one. So we put some <laughs> questions out to the Instagram community and got uh, several dozen back, but we've whittled it down to three. Two of them are very deserving. One of them's questionable. But the first question is from Ben underscore Haini, who asks, which CT surfer, former, current, have you not worked with that you would like to work with? There's a lot, you know, I, first and foremost, I'm just like you, Dave, I'm just a huge grommet. Like I, I love watching, um, all the surfers on tour. I'm a fan and I have close relationships with a lot of, a lot of the surfers on tour. So I'll, I don't know how to answer that question other than I'll tell you who I really geek out on and who some of my favorite surfers on tour. Uh, I think it's, I think that new blood is really fun to watch from Australia. I love watching Ethan. Um, mm. and Jack, I think that's really, that's maybe some of the most exciting, uh, surfing, let alone stories building on tour is, you know, cause Australia has been taking a hit the last five years and it's cool to see those guys blow up. Um, and I think their potential is, is, is as good as it gets. They could win world titles. So I'm a huge fan of them. Also Seth Moniz, I, I, you know, I'm, um, as a, as a local boy from Hawaii, I, you know, I really want to see more Hawaiians get on tour at the peak of, um, you know, the most Hawaiians ever on tour was in the mid nineties when I was on tour and we had, I want to say 11 or 12 of us, there was a mm. bunch of us on tour. So I like that Seth is waving a flag, but I'm, I'm hoping like his brother, Josh and a bunch more surfers can, uh, rep, you know, wave the flag for Hawaii. Makes sense. Uh, second question. This one is the uh, suspect one. Alden Milby asks, <laughs> I have to read it. Ross, you've always been known for your iconic hairstyles from 90s blonde, silky smooth chili bowl to the mature modernized fade. I have to wonder what's next. Wait, is this from Milby? Like our Milby? Yeah, yeah. Milby's real name's Alden. That's the big reveal in this question. Wow. Al Alden uh, Shannon. That's questionable, yeah. Coming from a fiery redhead too, I like it. it and, and by the way, uh, you know, you folks at home might not know who Milby is, but he's one of our, you know, our, our beloved producers on the WSL uh, media team. And he has fiery red hair and he's always got a very slick buzz. Um, so this is an interesting question. 
I go to this place that my buddy June Joe is part owner of. It's called Golden Hoy. And they're just a cool classic barber shop in Honolulu. And uh, I just sit down and say, just say, hook me up. You know, I'm getting older. I'm getting thinner. I just say, just make, make me look halfway decent. Nothing fancy. Looks really good. I'm going to look that place up next time I'm over there. <laughs> Last Instagram question is from L Beachbum who asks, do you think the WSL will need to reinvent the events in any way after COVID? And if so, how? Good question. After COVID, sometimes Mick and I, you know, there's been a few topics that related to this. We're like trying to tweak things and what do we see in the future? Um, and, and to be honest, it's already happening. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the WSL is already doing it. You know, they're going to have that cut next year where they're going to whittle it down to smaller group. To me, that's what's enticing is having uh, an event window where you can capitalize on one swell. I think that's going to make a big difference. That's when you're going to be able to take a crew to these really premium spots and just score waves. Uh, you know, As a fan of serving, that's what excites me. On the flip side, I always want it to be inclusive um, on tour. I think that should always be a big part of it is having access to the tour as a, a young pro surfer. Um, I'd hate to see it be too, you know, tight of a group where it's just impossible to get on the championship tour. So I think the WCL is doing all that. They're trying to always have it accessible with the regional events and, and, and a pathway to get on a CT and, and then a, a way to sort of capitalize on one swell. So they're doing it. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel, I feel like we are doing it. I, if, if not, I'm working on a lot of things for, for no reason. <laughs> I feel like we're doing that all the time. All right, final segment. It is the lightning round. 10 questions, answer as quickly as you can. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, what would you choose? Well, being that I live on a North Shore, I'd have a 6-1 round pin thruster, just a good old all-arounder that I could ride in two-foot waves or eight-foot haliva. Coffee or tea? Definitely coffee. Burrito or pizza? Oh, burrito. Last book you read? Uh, into thin air. Best surf film ever. Ooh, let's go surf in the summer. That's a classic. I like the narration. One wave you never have to go back to. Oh, jeez, That's a tough one. I don't want to like throw a surf spot <laughs> under the bus. Uh, Puerto Escondido. It's kind of a glorified closeout. <laughs> if you only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life. Oliva. Best person to share the lineup with. Uh, not Kelly Slater. He's, he's a bit of a wave hog. <laughs> My kids. Let's go sentimental. Good answer. Worst person to share the lineup with? Yeah, Kelly. Phil, last one. <laughs> Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... Finishing my coffee. Excellent. Ross Williams, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. Thank you for your friendship. I hope you and your family are doing well. And I hope, uh, I hope we get to keep going back and forth while we get to watch some more surfing in Australia. Dave, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your podcast and uh, this has been really fun. So I appreciate it. Stoked. Thanks, man. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Ross Williams. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you're catching the world's best surfers back in action for the Rip Curl Newcastle Cup presented by Corona, streaming live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. This episode is produced by Ryan Fawcett with art direction by Jason Penning. Thanks to both of them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that is recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Quiche de Wagner, and the native Hawaiian people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next week.
In the 805, we live life on a different path. Where medals aren't given, they're earned. Where stories aren't written, they're lived. And legends aren't born, they're made. It's not just what you do, it's who you do it with. This is 805 Beer.